804 Apple time, time to begin our grand rounds. Uh, thank you for joining us here uh, in, in live in, uh, in Hartford and also for those of you who are on the web uh, podcast, uh, all kinds of uh, electronic means. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Usually we get about 400 people, so uh, either live or at some point. Um, we have a, a very important uh, grand rounds today on, on the aging physicians and uh, love the title with the athletic analogy. Uh, Dr. Sean will, will introduce our speaker. I uh, just want to say a couple of things, uh, um, you know, looking back and, and Scott and I always get together to figure out, you know, I, I, what I tell him is that I gave him the job because I, I was a first year faculty member, junior faculty member in infectious disease. And they asked me uh, to interview uh, Scott. Uh, he was at Children's National at the time. And, uh, and and I really liked him, and I think I was right. Uh, he was he was hired. He was brought in here, and he's done. At the time, we we really did not have a a, a division of pediatric otolaryngology. It was um, it was mostly the adult uh, otolaryngologists that were doing the work. And fast forward uh, to this time, 21 years later, and uh, what Scott has done with the division of pediatric otolaryngology has been nothing less than remarkable. The growth, the excellence, the quality of the people that he's brought in and the, the breadth of what we can do now is is, is really superb. And, and I give Scott uh, enorm enormous credit for uh, having that vision. Uh, and uh, so congratulations, Scott, for everything that you have done for the Children's Hospital. You know, it's always good to just stay, take a, a minute of, of everyone's time to remind us of the great people that we have. So. Uh, again, thank you, Scott, for everything that you have done. And also thank you for bringing us an outstanding speaker and Dr. Meyer, and I'd like you to introduce him from our uh, our partner institution, I'm going to call that Cincinnati Children's, uh, who is a fantastic uh, and amazing place doing uh, incredible things. And we're catching up to you very quickly, so we're going to get there. Scott? Thanks so much, Juan. Uh, thank you all for coming in for those who are watching this uh, remotely. Uh, I'm going to be very brief, uh, but I want to hit the highlights uh, for uh, Chuck. I'm honored to invite uh, and have Chuck Meyer here as uh, our guest speaker, uh, one of my heroes in uh, pediatric otolaryngology who helped to develop the subspecialty. Uh, Chuck is currently at Cincinnati Children's. He did his undergrad work at uh, Vanderbilt and then went to University of Alabama for medical school. His uh, fellowship was at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, and he helped to build a huge mega system of airway along with his partner, Robin Cotton. And those of you who know anything about pediatric otolaryngology know the Cotton-Meyer or the Meyer-Cotton classification of subglottic stenosis, as, as Chuck laughs. Uh, as you can see, he's a professor at Children's and he is the vice chair at uh, University of Cincinnati. Uh, looking through his CV, he has uh, over 215 refereed published articles. That's not a mistake, 200, over 215. So he's obviously an academic machine. He has over uh, 700, uh, uh, 575 invited lectures. Uh, he's the uh, co-author of the Airway uh, Practical Pediatric Otolaryngology textbook, which he joked this morning when we went to my office, he said, oh, you've got a really old copy of that. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, well, 
not much has uh, has changed uh, so as far as the anatomy, the treatment has changed. So I want to let uh, Chuck have the full amount of time here and not take up any of his time. So uh, please uh, give a warm welcome to my friend Chuck Meyer. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, we'll get started. You got to know when to hold know when to fold know when to walk away, know when to run. I'm not sure that Kenny Rogers uh, really feels that way or that he's dealing with the aging physician, but it did seem applicable to what we're doing. So I think that as physicians, as we get older, the thing that you have to look at is Hopefully we carry a certain amount of experience and expertise, those of us with little hair or gray hair, um, but that's balanced with what goes on normally with aging, which we'll talk about, cognitive decline, which whether we want to admit it or not is taking place. And then there's going to be skill decay because for many of us, we change what we're doing as we go along. We modify our practice pattern, but we're still put in the same position to take care of certain disease issues and we may not have done that for a period of time. So I think we have to evaluate ourselves critically um, as we go forward and look at those various things. This is not a new problem. You can see in 1792, Dr. Percival uh, addressed this very issue. And he said, medicine is a fiduciary profession and it's the duty of each practitioner to give up the task when his or her skills have deteriorated how to recognize this point may constitute a significant problem. It was a problem in 1792 and it's still a problem in 2020. Um, we don't do a very good job of policing ourselves and we don't do a very good job individually of critiquing ourselves as to what we should or should not be doing. Hopefully retirement becomes somewhat of a straight path like you see on the left side, that it's a voluntary decision that we make on our own. Unfortunately, for some of us, it becomes a mandatory decision. Something happens along the way, and it's a, a circuitous route to get those of us who have, uh, have diminished skills out of the workforce. When we're looking at what we're doing, it really is an issue of competency. Can we still do the work we're supposed to do, as well as wellness? Are we healthy enough to do what we need to do? And so when we're doing evaluations of physicians as we go forward from an aging standpoint, we have to look at those two issues. Uh, this uh, individual at Stanford indicated being a physician is not just what we do, it's who we are. And the idea of someone saying we can't do something anymore is quite frightening. And I think that for many of us, this is our identity. And I'm not saying that's right, but for many of us, uh, we're identified as a physician and we become uh, somewhat wrapped up in that because so much of our life is spent being a physician. Um, in the American College of Surgeons bulletin, this statement was made, the best surgeons know when to leave the operating room for good. It's always better to do so one year too early than one day too late. And certainly you want to be asked why you're leaving, not when you're leaving. I tend to see that the when oftentimes comes about. We have to be careful though. This was uh, about a year or two years ago at the Cleveland Clinic where a 77 year old otolaryngologist felt that uh, the institution was directing patients away from him and to younger colleagues. And as it turned out, the court agreed with him 
and he receives a $28 million judgment against the Cleveland Clinic. So it's all well and good that we come up with um, statements and uh, rules as to what to do with the aging doctor, but we have to be careful what we wish for because something like this may come about. This is an 84-year-old physician in New Hampshire, sort of apropos with the uh, balloting taking place today. And she refused to use a computer. If you read the headline, she lost her medical license because of this. Well, she lost her medical license because she was prescribing inappropriately. She had shoddy record keeping on her index cards and she had questionable decision making. So there were some other reasons that she lost her license. But nonetheless, here's where the state stepped in and took a license because the individual was no longer capable of practicing medicine. And interesting talking with some of the physicians this morning, when your hospital has an older surgeon who's no longer competent and there's no policy on aging, it's the institution that has the problem. And it sounds like you're developing a policy. If you're relying on a colleague to tell you when to step away, then it's probably too late. I feel fortunate, I think, my son is one of my partners, has been now for about six years. I think he'll tell me when it's time to step away. He certainly calls enough to ask questions now, so I think he'll probably tell me that. And Dr. Catlick, and we'll reference what he does at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore, has an aging surgeon program, indicates that you want to leave the stage while they're still clapping. And I think that's a pretty appropriate statement. As we go forward in the talk, one of the things that you're going to see is that I slip a little bit more into surgeons. I'm a surgeon, and so a lot of this is directed towards surgeons. And I think that for the most part, it's much easier to look at surgeons and decide when they should stop practicing because we have some metrics we can use, and we'll go over that. It's a little bit harder, I think, in primary care to do that. Nonetheless, we'll go forward, and so I apologize if I'm slipping between. Um, some of the laryngologists met my wife last night, and um, clearly she is not uh, shy about speaking her mind. Most of the time, we think of our spouse as having compassion, understanding, and support. These are statements that I might have heard at my own house, uh, may have heard elsewhere, but certainly at my own house. You can't retire until you have something to do. That's pretty obvious, I think. She said, you can't retire, you'll kill the dog. And I gave this talk elsewhere and one of the physicians raised his hand. He said, that was what my wife said. So I bought a second dog so I can alternate walking them. <laughs> I have suggested that, but so far deaf ears. The usual, I married you for better or lunch or better or worse, not for lunch. You can unload the dishwasher, but you're not to load it though. She says, I actually can load it, but not to be insulted when she changes how it's loaded. So, and then the last one, which has been emphasized repeatedly, I'm not your employee. And I must say she doesn't respond as well as my employees either. If we look at mandatory retirement ages, there are a lot of these professions where the physician retires a lot earlier than a lot of us in the room. You can see air traffic controller, federal judge, pilots, law enforcement, firefighters. What do these have in common? And we'll go over this a little bit more later too. These are all professions that are judged to have something to do with public safety. I'm not quite sure how we don't have anything to do with public safety, but that is not judged by the government to be a, a problem. 
if we look at the demographics of physicians and aging, it's remarkable what you see as far as the aging physician population. In 1985, only about 9.4% of the physician population was over 65. 20 years later, it wasn't a lot different, 11.7%. But when you jump another 10 years forward, you can see that 30.9% of physicians were over 60 years of age and almost 11% were over 70 years of age. And in this year, 2020, 18% are 65 or older. So we've doubled since 1985 and 39%, almost 40% of the population is over 55 years of age. Looking at it in a little bit different study, very similar number, 43% of US physicians are over 55. Look, 61% of psychiatrists, 46% of general surgeons, and 44% of internists. So we have an aging physician population and it's going to continue to get worse. 15% in this study were over 65 and that tripled over that 36 year period. If we look specifically at surgeons in academic centers, you can see that between 1967 and 2007, the number of faculty over 55 tripled. The frightening thing when you look at this number as well is that medical discipline rates were almost four times as high for physicians who had been in practice over 40 years who were out of medical school. And so that's something that we have to keep in mind going forward. If we look again at surgeons, roughly 20% of surgeons in Canada and Australia and in the United States as well are going to be over 65 years of age. And the age of retirement of physicians, according to the American Academy of Medical Colleges, has gone up five years since 2003. So one thing we need to keep in mind and hopefully we'll emphasize as we go on is that age is not the problem with the practice of medicine. It's aging and the changes that occur with aging. And though we don't want to admit it, none of us do. Things happen as we get older and we need to take these things into account as we go forward. So at age 65, 40% of us have some hearing loss. Some of that may be selective at this point, but nonetheless, we do have hearing loss. 10% have sleep apnea. Most of us have visual problems, and up to 20% may have some degree of cognitive impairment. And one of the things we'll hopefully leave with is an understanding that cognitive impairment is going to happen. The question becomes, is that cognitive impairment impacting your ability to practice medicine? And even though we're recommending, or many people are recommending doing neuropsychological testing, it's not been shown that a failure of that testing necessarily translates into an impairment in your practice of medicine. Almost 70 or 70% 70 of us at age 70 are going to have some osteoarthritis and that may be critical if we're practicing a surgical field where you're needing to stand on your feet or use your hands on a regular basis. And 40% of patients who've had some sort of a TIA may have cognitive impairment. Aging is not the only thing that may impact our ability to practice or our ability to be competent. If we didn't do well in medical school, we're practicing in isolation and we're not having continued stimulation from other individuals. 
People who don't have hospital privileges have been shown to have uh, less competence, lack of board certification, out of scope practice. Those of us who have a low clinical volume, if we have not kept up with our knowledge or clinical skills or procedural skills, the thing that's become very popular to discuss, fatigue, stress, and burnout, and whether we have any mental or physical health issues can also play a role in addition to aging. So what impacts our ability to perform as a physician? Well, it's our cognitive skills, which are said at least in the realm that we're working, peak at about the age of 28, our physical ability between 45 and 50, and our experience and expertise which clearly get better as we get older, somewhere in the 50 to 70 year age range. So it's a combination of these things that allow us to function effectively as a physician. So time stands still for no one. I would include medical physicians or non-procedural physicians as well. But as a group, surgeons, and I'm sure medical doctors do as well, fare better. Why is that? Well, to a degree, it's self-selection. We've gone into the medical field because we have certain innate cognitive abilities that allow us to su succeed in this realm. But there are protective factors that have been shown to help with the aging process. Higher socioeconomic level, most of us are in reasonably good health, higher income, and certainly in academics, continued intellectual stimulation. So we start higher and we decline slower. So that's a benefit to us in healthcare. But while wine and cheese may get better with age, as surgeons, we do not. Over time, we mentioned decreased strength, vision, dexterity, and at some point, cognition. We do have certain compensatory strategies. I mentioned that as we get older, we have certain experience and knowledge that allows us to succeed. Reputation and enabling, well, what do I mean by that? Well, hopefully when I go into the operating room, I don't always see the most senior resident with me to quote, keep me out of trouble. I would like to see the best scrub nurse, most experienced anesthetists, do they order extra, extra blood for you in certain cases? What do I mean by lack of a proctoring system? Well, hopefully your colleagues are going to tell you when it's time to step away. Realistically, does that happen? Not very often. Certainly in my situation, we had a, or I had a senior partner that I had been with for, well, as in practice, 35 years through residency and fellowship, 41 years. We'd been together 41 years. It's pretty hard to tell that individual you're slipping or that you need to make some changes. He had told me that I need to tell him when he's off his game. It's not what he wanted to hear. Didn't go well. Competitors, they won't say anything because they're afraid of being accused of restraint of trade. So for the most part, physicians operate in isolation in that regard. Nobody is really willing to step forward and say anything to them. So why are surgeons and physicians resistant to retirement? I mentioned that what we do in medicine is a reflection of who we are. This is our identity for many people. For what we do, it's all consuming. We have a fear of death. If we stop working, maybe we're going to die. We're resistant to change. We're very comfortable with what we're doing. We're afraid of going on to quote, a fixed income. There's some security of advanced age, and we're gonna talk about this. And lastly, 
neither we as physicians nor institutions help us necessarily plan for the eventuality that we need to stop working. So when we look at the security of advanced age, we're talking about greater credibility. People look at us with respect. They think we have a better perspective on things. And to a degree, we have greater clinical confidence and certainly competence, again, to a point. I mentioned an athletic analogy, and we'll cover this a little more as we go forward. But if you look at what we do as a surgeon, as a physician, and what an athlete does, there really are some similarities. Most athletes have trained their whole life to become a pro or to become exceptional in what they do. We go through college, medical school, residency, fellowship to get to where we are. Athletes perform on the stage. They're in the, in the field. They're on TV. We're in the operating room. We have lights shining down on the patient or on us. Sanctity of the locker room in the OR. What happens in the OR stays in the OR, hopefully. Communication skills. We both groups have to have excellent communication skills. We need to be able to communicate with our patients. We need to be able to communicate with our colleagues and also with the ancillary staff with whom we work. Athletes need to be able to talk to the coaches. They need to be able to talk to the media. Coaches need to be able to relate to their players. There is internal and external authority. Your institution has rules. Your department may have rules. For athletes, certainly the league has certain rules. There are certain things you have to follow when you're playing the sport. Metrics, my complication rates are out there for everyone to see in our group. My successes are out there for everyone to see. Athletes have batting averages. They have field goal percentages. People know how they're performing. And when they start slipping, it's fairly apparent. The statement about athletes, they, quote, deserve to go out on top. You should be able to leave on your own terms. And I think for most physicians, we feel that way as well. We should determine when we leave practice. Somebody else should not tell us when that should take place. We're afraid of retirement to a degree, most of us. We don't know what that means. Athletes are the same way. Why else would they hang on as long as they do in many situations? And then one thing we need to consider is the potential for mentorship. Athletes can become coaches, uh, managers. We can become mentors to the younger physicians and we should take advantage of that. So there are similarities, at least in my opinion, with the elite athlete and the surgeon. This is uh, actually a slide that I did with our graphics uh, individual, and I'm actually pleased with it, so pardon me for a minute. But uh, I think that hospital administration often looks at the surgeon who's been around for a while as a cash cow. And um, I think that sometimes they turn a blind eye to what actually that physician is doing from a competent standpoint, as long as he or she is generating income for the institution. One of my partners is the credentials chairman for the hospital. He has to look at, is that senior surgeon still capable of practicing? The department chairman has several jobs. Scott is responsible for determining how much his colleagues make. He has to make sure that he has enough docs to do the work that is necessary to be done. And he always has to be thinking about a replacement in case somebody leaves or retires. Now it's interesting in our group, 
When I started, there were two of us. Last year, when my senior partner left, there were 16 of us. So we grew substantially, sort of like Scott did. Well, for the last 18 years, my senior partner has had a five-year plan. It has changed every year. So at age 60, he said, this is my five-year plan. And we're thinking, okay, you're going to leave at 65. So you recruit someone two, three years down the road to replace him. Well, the next year, there was a new five-year plan. For 17 years in a row, we had a new five-year plan. So it may not be a problem for that individual, but it clearly becomes a problem for the department chair. And what happens is you recruit people to replace the senior colleague, and then your junior faculty don't have the cases that they want to do or are expecting to do. They don't have OR time. They don't have clinic time. And all of a sudden, you've got disgruntled people in the department. And then it becomes increasingly harder to replace them if they choose to leave. So I think that it is problematic when we as senior physicians can't make up our mind about what we want to do. And though we can never be held to that standard as to when we should leave, it is something we need to keep in mind. So the Greeley Company does consulting with uh, lots of healthcare organizations, and they've come up with 10 things that aging physician issues that are really uh, the hospitals are facing. And so we're gonna look at these and, and I don't have the answer, but we need to at least ask the question. Do we treat physicians differently based on their age? And if we do, how do we do so? And unfortunately, we're trying to objectify a subjective process. When, should you, when are you incapable of doing the work that you think should be done. As we grant privileges, should we limit what older physicians should do? What kind of accommodation should we make for that? What if we allow older physicians not to take ER call? Is that going to cause a problem? The flip side is if we force them to take call, is that going to cause a problem as well? Do we look at other things, visual acuity, dexterity, technical aptitude, and what should be included in a fitness for duty assessment. And where we get into problem with this is, this is not just an age phenomenon. I was asked to evaluate a physician in another Midwestern city. One of my residents said, this was a colleague in town. He came up for credentialing and he had had three disastrous tonsil complications in an 18 month period. It had two deaths and one emergency trach in an 18-month period, clearly to the far side of the bell curve. Individuals only 35 years of age. So when I was reviewing things, you, know, you can, can tell very little from the medical record, from the operative notes, but the individual had thoracic outlet syndrome and also had had carpal tunnel. Ultimately, they, I said, well, he needs a fitness for duty evaluation and he needs to be proctored. Well, the statistician said because of the infrequency of tonsil bleeds that they would need to evaluate 450 tonsillectomies to decide whether he should continue to practice or not. 
Well, for someone in private practice, I would imagine it's pretty hard to get 450 tonsillectomies in any reasonable time frame. And then how does that individual go about telling his families that I'm going to do your child's tonsillectomy, but I'm being proctored by another ear, nose, and throat doctor while I do that? So that was a practicality matter. For the fitness for duty evaluation, they actually sent him to San Diego to the PACE program. And they found that he was three standard deviations below the mean for dexterity and strength in his hands. Is this why the patients had the complication? I don't know that we can say that, but certainly going forward, would you grant credentials to someone who had that impairment? I actually talked to multiple orthopedic surgeons and they were negative in that regard. And, uh, but I left it to the institution, obviously, as to what they were going to do. Ultimately, the physician decided to go on disability and stop practice. I'm sure there's going to be litigation in regards to the three cases. But nonetheless, here you have somebody that was denied privileges because of health issues, but it had nothing to do with aging and just had to do with his health. And that's where we get into a little bit of problem with everything being age-based um, because it is clearly not just that. What about peer review? There can be internal peer review and also external peer review. And what are the tolerances in this regard? I was asked to come to Pittsburgh to evaluate one of my former professors. At Children's in Pittsburgh, when you turn 65, you have to be proctored by someone from outside the institution or at least reviewed. But the individual being proctored gets to choose the person doing it and choose the cases that you watch them do. I think it's more show and uh, our dog and pony show than anything else. I don't think it really holds any value if somebody comes and watch me, uh, watches me do three tubes and two scopes, does that really prove anything? But nonetheless, it does say to the community, we're proctoring our older physicians. And that's where this uh, external peer review comes in. And then who bears the cost of that? Is it the surgeon who's doing the operation or is it the institution, the department? That's something that clearly has not been worked out. Bylaws, the ER question comes about, and then how can we help all of the various committees within, within the institution make good decisions? What, cha what challenges do we face based on age discrimination from a compliance standpoint? And I mentioned that uh, the individual in Cleveland was able to successfully sue the institution when he lost the ability to see patients. And are we setting the bar too high? Are we creating a problem that really doesn't exist? And what about risk? The older physician is assuming a risk. The institution is assuming a risk. The patient is assuming a risk seeing an aging physician. Those are all questions that need to be, at least be asked. I don't know that we can answer them at this point. And with more and more practices being purchased by hospitals, what accommodations are being made for those practices that have older physicians within them? And then are there different rules of engagement, so to speak, in dealing with older physicians? What type of conflict resolution met our, uh, plans are in place? Because there are clearly going to be challenges from this. And we need to work with the physician leaders and with the institution itself to come up with a plan that is palatable to all individuals. So 
Setting an age-based standard probably makes no scientific sense because we all age in different ways. And to the extent that we can measure things, experience, compassion, and wisdom play a role. So what are those arguments against a mandatory retirement age? Well, clearly there's individual variability as far as our cognitive skills are concerned. Many people, older physicians more than younger physicians, may be on medications and these may have side effects and hopefully we can identify those. Hopefully if we have neuropsych testing, we'll determine those individuals that have depression or ongoing neurologic disease. I mentioned that 10% of the population as we age have sleep apnea, vision and hearing problems are universal. And for some, ageism or prejudice based simply on age plays a role in determining how well we're going to function. So there are things going on that do factor into these decisions. So if we do base credentialing or the ability to practice medicine simply on age, what problems may exist? There are going to be some unintended consequences. Well, it's going to, there is a physician shortfall and that's going to get worse, especially if we take people out of circulation before they need to be out. I mentioned that most of us who are older have some degree of expertise and experience with wisdom. Public have, for many of us has paid for a part of our education, so they're gonna be losing money, so to speak, if we stop practicing too early. Old does not mean incompetent. Age is a risk factor, but we mentioned that it's not the only one. There are a lot of other things that factor into it. And I mentioned the Age Discrimination and Employment Act from 1967. So what can we do to address the decline that's going to take place over time? You can argue about the merits of maintenance of certification, but at least it gets people reading and continuing to learn. In procedural specialties such as surgery or gastroenterology, pulmonary, we have a responsibility to maintain our skills. We should tailor our practice to those areas in which we're good, that we still feel comfortable, and then use colleagues for consultation and referral. When I started 35 years ago, I did everything. There were two of us. Now there are 15 of us. There are three or four guys in my group that just do airway, two that do voice, one that does vascular malformations, two that do ear. If they can do that better than I can, why am I not having them do that? If I have a failure, it should be a failure because of the pathology, not because of my clinical skills. You have to get your ego past that, but once you get your ego past that, it's okay. So I joke now that I'm the primary care pediatric otolaryngologist in our group, and I'm okay with that. But you have to arrive at that decision yourself and be comfortable with that. Self-assessment and reflection, well, what do I mean? Self-assessment is where you critically look at your cognitive skills, your physical skills. How well do we do that as physicians? Terribly. Multiple studies show that. We, we don't know when we're declining, and if we are, we tend to repress that. Self-reflection, if my son tells me I need to stop doing something, that's self-reflection. I need to listen to that person tell me that. So there's a difference in self-assessment and self-reflection, and though we're not very good at self-assessment, hopefully we're better when somebody actually comes to us 
and tells us something. And the healthcare system, be that insurers, be that your institution, your department chair, they have some responsibility for oversight. The difficulty is cost. So what are some triggers for evaluation? And in talking to some of the physicians here this morning, it sounds as though Hartford Hospital has decided age 70 is the time that they're going to be doing evaluations. And that has certainly been mentioned, that every surgeon at 70 years of age, every time you're recredential, should have an assessment. We'll go over what some of those are. Failure of your OPPE or FPPE would be a trigger. Unfortunately, it's often a sentinel event. Something bad happens to an older doctor, and that's when you start assessing whether that individual is capable of practicing or not. But if they have a long and stormy malpractice history, that would be a tip-off. Discretion of the chief of surgery or of the hospital president. Hospital president oftentimes doesn't chime in, so he's from a surgical standpoint, because I mentioned the older surgeon can be a cash cow for the hospital. What about those of you who are not physicians? What should you be looking for? Well, the doctor doesn't remember you or confuses you with somebody else. Two of the guys that I trained with, one urologist, one general surgeon, developed early Alzheimer's. The general surgeon took my wife's gallbladder out within six months, was getting lost in the hospital, forgetting the names of instruments, had to quit working. Both of these individuals died quite young, but had early onset Alzheimer's. The doctor is dismissive or impatient. And I'll grant you, many of us can be that way normally. So this would be a change in that manner. <laughs> Answers to questions can be confusing or convoluted. You don't remember to do the things you're asked to do. I, some of us are entitled to have senior moments, but when it becomes more than a senior moment, that's when you begin to worry. What about if you're a primary care physician and basically all you do is well care and everything else you send out? Maybe your staff is noticing that. And the staff might notice that you're having problem seeing, hearing, or having shaking. There are several programs or hospital-led age-based programs you can see here. Utah at Intermountain Healthcare, Stanford, Scripps in San Diego, and Penn Medicine. Stanford is interesting because their faculty rejected cognitive testing in favor of peer review. So cognitive testing was passed, but then the faculty voted it down. Utah Medical Association has led to a state law that bans age-based physician screening. So this is not a simple question. So why is there opposition? Who's gonna pay for it? Those of us who consider ourselves asymptomatic are not gonna be very happy about somebody finding that we have a problem. There's a low prevalence of this, and that's going to lead to a high number of false positives unless there's near perfect specificity. You may end up with a lack of physicians in certain underserved areas. If we take them out of, pop, out of circulation, that may be they shouldn't be practicing, but nonetheless, that's one of the potential side effects of this. And of the test that we do, the test may be abnormal, but does that mean that the physician is incapable of continuing to practice? So Sinai Hospital, in Baltimore has with an aging surgeon program. 
They report that it is comprehensive, multidisciplinary, objective, and con confidential. So its goals are to protect surgeons from arbitrary or unreliable methods of assessing competence and cognitive capacity, try to identify things that can be fixed, help the surgeon decide when to retire, protect patients from unsafe surgeons, and surgeons in hospitals from liability risk. And we mentioned this previously in those 10 things from Greeley, that risk is certainly something that we want to mitigate. It will rely on existing structures to make the decisions. So Sinai Hospital makes no recommendation. They simply prevent, present facts to your institution and your institution makes whatever decision they're going to make. This was just published in JAMA a couple of weeks ago that Yale did cognitive testing on all of their physicians 70 years of age, and they found 12.7% of them have impaired cognition. And you can see that they're very careful with the wording. This raises concerns about their clinical abilities. No one has shown that the impaired cognition means that you can't practice medicine but it's certainly something that has to be on our radar. With the aging surgeon program, hospitals have various options. Continue your privileges as previously, deny your privileges totally, allow you to see patients but not operate, be assisted by another surgeon, only be able to be an assistant, make sure that you have a focused review of a large number of cases similar to what we talked about on that other physician or decrease work hours no call responsibility the adaptive measures that we can voluntarily do as a surgeon or in you can apply this to your own practice in primary care reduce your case volume and complexity take longer to do the same thing that you used to do Maybe it takes you 45 minutes to do a tonsil, not 30. You still do it well, but you take longer. That's okay. Admit that. Change your workflow. Increase use of memory aids. Write yourself notes. It's okay. Do things with one of your colleagues. Maybe you only work as an assistant and get second opinions when appropriate. So some of the challenges we face are accurate and efficient testing. When we make these decisions, Use multiple sources of information, peer review, self-assessment, colleagues, and then oversight group to integrate the information, your credentials committee, or maybe you come up with a special committee to look at this. So designing future testing, we mentioned neuropsychological testing that are specifically validated to look at are you capable of practicing medicine? And once we do that, Maybe we can drill it down farther and we can do it from a specialty specific standpoint. If the test results are inconclusive, utilize other bodies to help you make that decision. The University of uh, California, San Diego PACE program where that physician I mentioned in the other city went, Sinai, the aid surgeon program. If possible, design a plan to get the physician back to practicing again. For most of us, it's critical to solve. We have a need for intellectual stimulation. We want to continue contributing. What can we do? Can be a mentor to students and residents, teach anatomy, history and physical examination skills, work in a simulation program. 
This has been recommended again through JAMA surgery as individual physicians begin undergoing regular physical examinations. There's certain things that pilots have to do on a yearly basis or every six month basis. They can be disqualified from flying. We don't have to be disqualified, but we need to get treated if that's necessary. Healthcare organizations can strengthen the peer review process, internal review, external review, 360 degree evaluations. Medical societies can play a role when a physician is practicing in isolation and maybe they can provide the opportunity and ability for that physician to be assessed. Our national organizations can push us in this direction. Liability insurers can offer favorable rates if we undergo these types of evaluations, both peer review as well as medical examinations. And the board exams can start including questions on aging and the problems with, that come about with aging so that we're all more aware of this issue. So we need to show respect for the aging physician. We should try to accommodate, not eliminate the aging physician. This came from the uh, British Medical Journal Quality Study. And you can see that as the pyramid goes up, there's increasing risk to the patient. There are voluntary actions that can be taken by surgeons and physicians. Then there are structured actions that the institutions can take when the surgeon voluntarily is not taking that. And then there can be enforced things done if the voluntary measures don't work. I mentioned a little bit about the athletic analogy. And uh, it was funny because when I went into Scott's office this morning, he has a big, uh, uh, clearly he's a Yankee fan. I know that may not be popular in all of you. Most of this comes from the Red Sox. Uh, but Lars Anderson, I've retired from baseball. Now what do I do? And um, for those of you who have not read The Athletic, it's in my mind a wonderful website uh, subscription, but uh, has daily content that is excellent. So think of us in medicine. We don't always know what to do either. It's almost like a part of you dies. You can see here, Chad Muller, the further you get away from it, the less you remember the negative things, the insurance problems, the problem parents, the problem patients. You st start to forget how difficult and painful certain things were and how emotionally exhausting it was. You just remember the good stuff. Will Middlebrooks, an infielder with the Red Sox. I know it's just a game, but it's almost like mourning. It was more than a game to us. It was my life since I was, like, since I was a kid. It's like a part of you dies. Again, I've been doing this for 41 years now. It's who I am. And I'm not sure that I have arrived at that decision yet as to what I'm going to do. Retirement, it's a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. I just miss it. I'm afraid I'm going to miss medicine. The guys, I'm going to miss being in the operating room, being with people, it put, pushing myself every day to get a little bit better. I think all of us do that. And it's something that we really can't replace. I miss it in baseball. I'm going to miss that in medicine. I'm going to miss the collegiality the mental gymnastics that we go through. Those are the things that I think we're going to miss. Dwayne Wade, so it's not isolated to baseball. No one really gets to walk away from the game at the perfect time. No one's ending is perfect. I have more left, but I don't want to empty it all out, leaving a year too soon rather than a day too late. Passion and joy is not the same. My mind's not 100% into it. 
And when it gets to that point, it's time to walk away. I was our residency director for 15 years. And I realized when I turned 65 that I just didn't have the same interest in doing that. I still like taking care of patients, but it wasn't fair to the residents for me to keep doing that if I wasn't 100% committed. So it's not just the patient care aspect, it can be the administrative aspect as well. Just this past fall at the American College of Surgeons Conference, there was a lecture on life after surgery and about pursuing a second career. And as this individual said, a big part of what will continue to drive change is that we're living longer, we're healthier, working into our 70s and 80s. Some people are gonna to live to 100. So if we start in one career, there may be a very good chance that we go to a second career. These are three of my friends. Malpractice attorney, the chairman of neurosurgery at the University of Cincinnati, a number of years ago, went back to law school and became a malpractice attorney in his second life. Basketball and golf coach, good friend of mine, anesthesiologist, pediatric anesthesiologist, boarded in pediatrics and anesthesia and did a pediatric anesthesia fellowship. He probably liked basketball better than anesthesia. He coached high school basketball from October to March. He took all of his call between March and October, worked 60% between October and March, and coached high school basketball until he got two kids in college and decided he needed the income. He ended up leaving Cincinnati, went to Shriners in Greenville, South Carolina, and ultimately to Tampa to a surgery center. While he was there, he got a master's in kinesiology. And at 67, 68 years of age, he moved back to St. Olaf College in Minnesota where he had gone and became the assistant basketball and assistant golf coach. That's his retirement. One of our other anesthesiologists, her last year in Cincinnati, she went to Cincinnati State and got a culinary degree. She wanted to be a baker. So she retired, she and her husband moved to Big Sky, Montana, and she started working in a bakery. That lasted about six months because she had to be in at 2 a.m. every morning to cook her uh, 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 muffins. And ultimately she ended up doing locum tenens work and coming back to Cincinnati two weeks a month for several years until she fully retired. But there are options out there if you get tired of medicine. And maybe when you get to be 60, 65 years of age, you go back to school and do something else. So remember that our faculties diminish with age. It's variable. Our functional age is not necessarily reflective of our chronological age. Certainly don't support any type of mandatory retirement age. We need to look at what our functional age is and come up with a good way of assessing that. All the current methods that we have in isolation are probably inadequate, but in some combination, there is probably some benefit to doing that. And then specifically for surgeons, there is an aging surgeon program in Baltimore. So thank you for the opportunity to talk about this uh, topic and if there are any questions. Thank you. That was, that was simply outstanding. Uh, we have um, a couple of minutes for questions or comments uh, from the audience. Thank you for addressing the topic. Uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards report says there's a 50% rise in voluntary surrendering of the medical license. And the number one reason is can't stand the system anywhere. I'm burned out. And suicide rates among physicians have passed police and dentists for the highest rates. Now, primarily people 40 and older. How is that being addressed by this? 
Unfortunately, I don't know that it is being addressed. So if you undergo neuropsych testing for, as a result of aging, and then later on there's some adverse event in your professional career, uh, is the confidential testing discoverable if there's ever litigation? I don't know that the testing, the, I don't specifically know the answer. The neuropsychological testing would be provided to your institution. I don't know what their obligation is. If it's part of the peer review process, then it would not be discoverable. And I would imagine that the institution would feel some obligation to keep it in that realm. You know, if you had adverse neuropsychological testing, then hopefully the institution would not allow you to continue to practice. And then you would not get into problems in that way. So I think that it becomes what is done with that testing uh, as much as anything else. Yeah, uh, enjoyed the, the talk, the thoughtfulness about this really challenging problem. So at Hartford HealthCare, uh, we uh, are seven hospitals. We have in place mandatory screening at age 70. Uh, and we've been doing it for about a year and a half. And we're actually just some uh, gathering our data. And we've been doing it in partnership with our colleagues at Yale, who started doing it about six months before, before we did. So there's been a good dialogue. And so we do uh, a, a neurocognitive screen. Uh, and then if you flunk the screen, you then have to go through for, for a full neuropsych evaluation, that and a focused physical exam. And we've had the luxury of having that physical exam be all being done by one physician, a geriatrician, uh, who is very much attuned to that. And, and he is really focusing on what are the specialty specific aspects of the physical exam. Uh, and so, and currently, uh, and we're just working on a publication, we're, we're running about a 10% rate of identifying problems, which then leads to a conversation. Uh, with those uh, uh, with those physicians, unlike our friends at Yale, we no one's litigated this here yet. Uh, the conversations have led to appropriate modifications in either retirement or appropriate modifications. But uh, you, you didn't uh, have a conclusion. So my question is: Should we? Uh, is, is that the right approach? Uh, moving to mandatory screening. We picked so it was seventy. Was certainly pretty arbitrary, and it was arbitrary because we thought we could get the votes on seven med executive committees to pass it at seventy. We didn't think we could maybe get those votes at age sixty or sixty-five. Just interested in your thoughts on uh, how do we create more structure to to do this work? Um, you can. I think we have to come up with a plan. I think what I'm trying to do is just, again, raise awareness. We don't have a policy at our institution. I think we need to have one, but it hasn't come up. Um, it was funny, when I was a fellow, our, um, it was age 65 at Pittsburgh Children's when you were forced to stop surgery. And uh, I know that the chairman of otolaryngology at the time fought long and hard for the head of general surgery to stop doing surgery. And then when that individual turned 65, the head of otolaryngology, he somehow managed to get the rules changed uh, that he didn't have to stop working. So um, I think we have to be, uh, have some degree of academic uh, integrity and honesty in doing this. But I, I think we do need a plan. I'm not sure 65 is the right number since I'm not 65 now, I'm older. Um, but 70 seems a reasonable number, but you just hope that people would Listen, I know Yale made, the big, made a big point in their paper of it was the same 
neuropsychologists that did the evaluations and having consistency obviously is going to be important uh, in this. And I applaud you for, you know, having the geriatrician uh, do the evaluation. It certainly seems reasonable. Thank you. This was wonderful. Um, you referred to this briefly, and I'm just wondering if there's any um, more national trend. It's pretty well known that as people age, um, something that compounds the, the um, differences in their abilities is a lack of regular sleep. And I wondered if um, other institutions are looking at the on-call schedules for people over, pick at any age, over a certain age, um, to um, uh, mitigate the impact of sleeplessness from being on call. Not that I'm aware of. I, I know that it has been discussed that in the surgical literature that should you be telling patients if you were up at night and um, ask them if they would like you to operate on them because you, for your elective schedule the next day that you were in for four hours at night, you got three hours of sleep, uh, do you want me to do your surgery? You know, it becomes a real problem because those people, the individual, the patients have taken time off, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, you have to look at it too what about the parent that has been up for four hours with a sick kid? Uh, you weren't on call officially, but you were up and you didn't get adequate rest, yet you go to work the next day and you're expected to function as well. So, and I don't think there are very many people that call in sick for that. I'm not saying that's good or bad, it's just a fact. So I don't know what the difference is in being on call and not working versus normal parental obligations. Thank you, Dr. Meyer. Um, when you talk about the option of moving into a mentorship role, supporting residents, uh, teaching medical students, um, we had someone like that when I was a resident. It was fantastic. It was a fantastic resource for all of us. We really enjoyed learning from him. In an increasingly fee-for-service-based medical economy, can one get, is there a model for getting paid for that? Is that a strictly voluntary activity? I mean, are, are people doing this in a way that's official and working with insurance and payments and things like that? My suspicion and uh, observation is you're doing this because you want to be around. And uh, most institutions are not going to reimburse you for that. Um, I mean, I, I, I get two paychecks, one from the University of Cincinnati and one from Children's Hospital. And my University of Cincinnati paycheck is about uh, 3% of what my children's paycheck is. And I pay them back for what they pay me. So even though I'm getting a UC check for teaching, I'm actually paying myself to do that. And though it would make sense that I would have some sort of an emeritus role, but I suspect emeritus equals not getting paid. Um, and the other side of that issue is um, I know of one institution where the former chair still comes in at 88, 90 years of age. And according to the current chair, they just see this individual as, quote, a doddering old man. And it, it, it is not a good scene that it's someone who won't go away. And so I think there has to be some oversight with that as well, that there is a point where probably having the senior person come in is not necessarily good because some of that legacy may be tarnished over time. Thank 
Thank you. It's going to have to be just 